Berbera. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah. True crime uncensored. Yes, you found the right place. You know, in uh, March, it'll be our 15th birthday, 15 years doing this show. It's, uh, what, six months away? Yeah. Is that exciting? Uh, no. No. <laughs> 15 years, we've done absolutely nothing to improve the program. We're proud of that. You know, you know, Beryl. What? You may think it's an anniversary. I think it's just one more year before your co-host dies on you again. <laughs> Fortunately uh, for me, you're my co-host. <laughs> Unfortunately for me. Yeah, I'll get Ann K. Howard to be my co-host. She's qualified. She's a rogue Anytime. and a vagabond. Yeah, unfortunately, it's quite the schlep for the young lady. Oh, she's overqualified. She's well-educated. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. And welcome back to the show. Thank you. I love being here. Well, I'm glad you do. We, uh, you, I'm sure you do a lot of interview programs, and this is probably the strangest one you're on. <laughs> it's also the best. Oh, it's thank the you. There you go. Hey. Yes. We love it's that. It's the one I enjoy. I enjoy this the most. Oh. As opposed to Dan No, no don't pick on Dan Zapansky. Oh. We love Colin. Dan Zapansky. He listens to the show, so... Be careful. He's a good guest, too. He's <laughs> yeah, Dan's great. Um, he, he's a little more intellectually demanding than this show. <laughs> uh, yes, well, that's not our fault. <laughs> no, no. Now, I, speaking of being intellectually demanding, uh, reading over your, your personal history, uh, you're very well educated. Uh, you, you know, you've got degrees in English literature. You've won creative writing awards. You're on the Dean's Honors List. Uh, you practice law. You uh, had this wonderful upbringing where you were highly neurotic. Uh, <laughs> it also says that your family lot life was fraught with turmoil and secrets. And, uh, and this is the part that interested me. You had academic and athletic achievements and no shortage of romance. Does that mean you were the local punch board or does it just mean you had a lot of boyfriends? I'm going to make sure my husband doesn't listen to this show after we're done, okay? All right. <laughs> no, I, I I liked the men. I, I really did. But, you know, in my defense, I got married very young, too. I was 22 when I was married. My husband was only 21. Whoa. So, he married know, an older woman. <laughs> how, how much can you get done romantically between the ages of 14 and when I met my husband, I was 20. So six years... Oh, I had plenty. Of, uh, I had lots of fun in those years. <laughs> I did too. I, I had too much fun, and yeah. and I I dodged a lot of bullets. You know, yes, like sometimes you look back. That's because they were shooting blanks. <laughs> <laughs> that's another you know, story for another time and another I'm show. I'm not even going there. I'm not going there. But I did like the men. I think I was in retrospect. I think I was a love addict. Oh, well, that's <laughs> good. Your husband lucked I, out I, then. I just felt, I, I was addicted to the feeling of falling in love. Yes. You know what I mean? A lot yeah, of endorphins. Right. right. It's, 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 you get a high out of it, but then after a year or two, you know. That's yeah, it's all gone. Tested. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then it's mm-hmm. drudgery. I've got to do that again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, we're... Yeah, exactly. Well, going on to more exciting topics, if there is yeah. one, uh, you mm-hmm. got another book. You crank these things out like little hotcakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one's especially fascinating to me because uh, this is about an escape from the Ukraine. 
And my father escaped mm. from the Ukraine when he was nine years old. Really? Yeah. Uh, what year would have that been? About what time was that? That was the time of the revolution, 18, about 1915. Yeah, I was 1915. Think about maybe Civil War? 1860 something? Or? 1915. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, the time of the revolution. Well, Burr is well, old and decrepit, but not that old. What was going on in Ukraine when he escaped? The uh, revolution. Right. The Cossacks would come through town and, you know, let's shoot some Jews. You know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> And then, and then they didn't have it any better in World War II yeah. when they were, you know, shot and 15,000 were thrown into the pit, the mass grave in Kharkiv. And, and in fact, Putin and, and the, Russia just bombed that, uh, at the start of the war, they bombed that memorial site in Kharkiv where oh, 15,000 Jews died. You know, what gets me is, you know, as George Lucas said when he was uh, doing the Indiana Jones movies, he said, all you got to do is put the Nazis on screen, and right away you know they're the bad guys. <laughs> I know, but isn't it ironic, bro, that that's exactly what Putin and Russia are doing with their propaganda now against yes. Ukraine? Yes, yeah, we're fighting the Nazis again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw a meme. It, it really struck home for me. It was like a, the, the Russian soldier saying, you know, we're slaves and we're coming to liberate the free Ukrainians. Yeah. That's, that's what it feels like. Like, what do you have to offer us? We don't want you to liberate us. What yes. does that even we're, mean? We're doing fine, mean? thank you. Yeah, exactly. Go away already. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, really strange. Mark has a question here. Mark, you know everything. Uh, I, I also have uh, family history uh, mm -hmm. in that region. My family escaped or just prior to the revolution. But they mm -hmm. were from Poland. A little mm -hmm. town called Grudnia, which was Polish yeah. at the time, and after the revolution, it's uh, more it's Russian. Mm -hmm. Right. So I have the you know, it, the same. Yeah. It, same I, I also I'm part Polish. My and, grandmother right. didn't even speak English. Very little um, English. Just and, had, and I just she had, actually uh, immigrated to uh, Toronto, and uh, and married there. Uh, and the only thing I learned about my family back in Poland, because in my family, everything was about being Irish, you know, because my father was 100% Irish. Right. So it was always about being Irish, and I never really knew much about my Polish background, and one of my family members did a lineage thing recently, and I found out that um, I have a great-grandfather named Cosmo, and I thought that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, like Cosmo Topper. Right. You know, Cosmo on... Uh, uh, Yes. What was it? Seinfeld. Yes, there was. He was on Seinfeld also. But yeah. There yeah, was the yeah. ghost, uh, the Topper ghost movies. Yeah. Well, Cosmo. But, you know, when you talk about you know people fleeing Ukraine, you know, I ask when it happened because when you look back at the last uh, 120, 150 years in Ukraine, it's just been crisis after crisis after crisis. You know, like Stalin's Great Famine in the in the early thirties, four million. Ukrainians starved to death and died in the Great Famine. So, like, that country has had so much suffering in modern history. Yeah, you don't hear about people escaping to the Ukraine. <laughs> right. Right, I just said to my husband the other day, why don't we take a Christmas holiday in Moscow? You want to do that? That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, they'd be happy to see you. Yeah, yeah. Bring yeah, your I bet would. Especially with this yeah. book uh, you have out now, Escape from Mariupol. As yeah. told to you, 
Now, how was it told to you? Let's get the story on this. Okay. So, um, yes, this young woman, she's 32, so not young to some, but young to me. Uh, she is a younger sister of one of my Ukrainian friends in America that I've known for 20 years. So when this all happened in Mariupol, I knew that the younger sister, Adoriana, who uh, tells the story, that she was still trapped in Mariupol. So uh, that, that's how I got to know her. Over the years, I've, I've written to her and known this young woman for years. And um, so she managed to escape Mary Upol after five horrific weeks underground amidst all the heavy bombing and shelling and gunfighting in the streets. She traveled through east, eastern Ukraine that was occupied by Russia, and most of it still is, managed to escape to the Czech Republic. So uh, when she was in the Czech Republic, I got her email, and we started just intensely communicating through e email back and forth. She would tell me her story, all of the experiences she had during the war, and then I would translate the Russian, because she speaks both Russian and Ukrainian, like a lot of Ukrainians do. Uh, I translated the Russian and then put it into prose and tried to do it in, you know, as creatively as a way, uh, a way as possible without compromising any of the right. facts. Yeah. Yeah. I've, it's, that's a challenging thing. People enjoy when we talk shop, so I'll talk shop for a minute. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a book that I worked on called Love of the Cost of Life about the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran. Mm. It was originally written in Farsi, and then a literal translation done from Farsi to English, and it was given to me to put it in conversational English. Interesting. And that was my, my job, my task, which I did. And the book is now mm -hmm. available in English. My, my version, shall we say, of taking the literal, word-for-word -word literal translation from Farsi to English and making it like someone's talking, speaking English. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, I'm, I'm about to publish a blog post called "Lost in Translation," but there was a lot of times that that she would tell me things and it wouldn't make sense. You know, she'd say she she stayed in a winery, right? I'm like a winery. Well, she she said the city of Venezia. It came out in translation that it was a winery. You know, and when she talked about the underground shelters, she called them orphanages. I'm like, what? So a lot of times the words don't directly translate, and we'd have to follow up and clarify all those things. Well, that's kind of like in the King James Version of the Bible, it talks about oaks, oak trees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not originally, it doesn't say oak trees. It says tabernacle, which is a scruffy-looking brush that you get turpentine from. But being mm. as they don't have tabernacle in England, the King James Version put in oak trees because people in England would know what an oak tree was. Yeah, wow, let's it's change sort of, the word it's again. It's sort of like the white, the white blue-eyed Jesus and the white yeah. blue-eyed Mary, right? When in fact they look totally different. Yeah, I, was, I mentioned uh, in a post that I wrote just yesterday that I've never seen Mary portrayed in a movie at the age she was when she really had Jesus, which was 12. No way. Yeah, according you, to the church, she was 12, it? which was perfectly in, in consonance with when people got married and had children at that time. Yeah. It was when you were 12 and 13 is when you got married and had kids. And so... I mean, I mean you, you died early, so you yeah. got to cram a lot of life into a few years. Yeah. So according to the church, she was 12, between 12 and 13. But you never see that in the movies. She's always like 25 or something. 
You know, I had these uh, visions that happened in uh, Medjugorje, Bosnia. Uh, there were sometime in the 80s, these children were having visions like they had at Lourdes and Fatima. And uh, in one of these visions, Mary allegedly told the kids that the date of her birthday that they celebrate in the Catholic Church, I don't even know what it is, but that that's not her actual birthday. Her, uh, her actual birthday is August 5th. And that's my birthday. <laughs> uh, mine's the 8th. <laughs> Henry? Yours is the 8th? Mine's August 8th. We can celebrate but together. You're a high Leo. You're a high Leo. Yeah, but yeah, Leo, Leo rising, Leo sleeping, yes. Leo 24 hours a day. Leo DiCaprio. We can be very difficult to live with, but, but we love fiercely. We, we're fiercely loyal to yes. people when they show us their worth, um, but we have very strong characters. Yeah, I'm a character. <laughs> All right. You are, Just girl. ask him. Ask Mark. He'll tell you. <laughs> He calls so, me the, yeah, well, I'm I'm convinced he's imaginary. He calls me the imaginary burrow bear instead of the legendary. I've never seen him in the same place twice. <laughs> well, you notice you never saw Anne Murray and Linda Lovelace together at the same time, which proves never. they're the same person. Uh, right, you know. right. You know, Bill, I'm so glad you're feeling better, though, because I remember being on Facebook. I think it was just before the pandemic. Maybe I forget, but you were in rough shape, and you were in the hospital for, like, ever. Yes, I was. I was in... Three hospitals in two states, or vice versa. I had a quadruple wow. bypass and a new heart valve. Wow. That's uh, heavy stuff. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better and everything turned out okay. Because well, I'm still, you... I'm still here. Otherwise, we'd be having this show through a trance medium or a Ouija board. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really upset because it screwed up my death pool. <laughs> yeah, it did. Yeah. And also the ratings might go through the roof if you were dead and you came through channeling. So, yeah. 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 So how did how did you meet the older sister? Um, well, um, over 20 years ago, when we were living in Ohio, I was super busy building a law practice, and my kids were young, so I needed a nanny. So I thought, well, I'll do it on the cheap, and I'll get, like, a nanny from Ukraine. <laughs> but I was, being Polish, I was very interested in that part of the world. And so I hooked up with this nanny service and got to know this girl online who at the time was 19. And we worked hard to try to get her a visa, and we couldn't get her a work visa. So I ended up hiring a Polish nanny. But this young 19-year-old and I stayed in touch for over 20 years. And this, the woman that told me this story, Adoriana Marique, um, she's the younger sister of this woman. So I contacted the woman who's now living in Florida and said, how is your little sister doing? Um, and she didn't know if she was dead or alive. I contacted her at the start of the Russian invasion in early March, I think I contacted her. So there was like a good two months where I was really worried that um, she was dead, that Doriana was dead, because, you know, we could only see the drone imagery of what was happening in Mariupol, but we've all seen it, you know, and now Ukrainian officials are saying that at least 23,000, they estimate, 23,000 civilians in Mariupol have died. Uh, and most of that death took place in the early weeks of the invasion when, the, when Russia was just raising the city to the ground. I mean, they just plowed down every single building, regardless of whether it was civilian or military. And uh, the chances of her surviving, I knew, were very slim. Uh, but she managed to hide under a auto parts store beneath a high-rise building in the center of the city, uh, alongside over 200 other people, 
for five weeks, you know, and, and it, it was dreadful. The situation, I mean, they had no food, they had no water. People were coming in from the bombed out buildings because the, the bombing would happen all night long, starting at about three or four in the afternoon and happen until dawn. And people would come running into their shelter who had life-threatening injuries and often they would die in, in that shelter. And uh, this young woman who told me her story would, would have to try to save their lives alongside other people trying to keep these people alive with no essential medicines or, or anything. It was bitter cold. I mean, it was the middle well, of winter. How in, horrifyingly in traumatic. I yeah. Mean, the emotional yeah. scars that you would have from, I mean, I hope she's getting some therapy. I mean, that's... Well, actually, she lives with us now. And uh, we sponsored her. She's over here with our, her dog, Yola. She, she hid in the shelter with her Siberian Husky for all that time. And, um, yeah, she, she's the first to admit that she has PTSD. She definitely has post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, even while she's been here, there's been a few meltdowns. But one of the conditions of her living with us, because she's, she's a very wonderful young woman, uh, but she has to, you know, talk to a therapist once a week, a Russian-speaking therapist. So he calls her once a week, and they have a therapy session once a week. Let me slide in here. Do you speak Russian? No, no. And that's why, I mean, without modern-day technology, I don't think I could have ever written this book without hiring an expensive translator. But I just, she, there was a translate link on my, you know, uh, Gmail that I would just press translate, and it would oh. automatically translate into English. And she was writing in Cyrillic. Yes, yes, and in Russian, um, not Ukrainian, Russian and Cyrillic. And that, that blows me away, too, the, how she's trying to learn English now, and she's come a long way um, in learning to speak English already. She takes three English classes a week, but um, I just don't know how you can change the way you write, you know? Like, it's one thing to learn Italian or French, but you're writing the same way, you know? It's, yeah, it's still the Arabic uh, alphabet. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, it seemed rather difficult. Um, you know, it's not it's not as bad as going from Japanese or Chinese or Korean. Oh yeah, I can't even imagine doing that. But yeah, you know, the book is like half of the book is about how she works through her post traumatic stress disorder. You know, because it's not just the relentless bombing and gunfighting in the streets and all the deaths she saw because. She, she literally slept beside corpses. Um, but it's also um, just having nothing, having your identity stripped away from you. And I think a lot of Ukrainian refugees feel that right now, is that, you know, they have to go to these other countries. They only have the clothing on her back, their backs. You know, when, when she arrived here, she literally had a backpack with a, a few items of clothing and her cell phone. That's, I mean, she lost everything. She lost everything like most Ukrainians have. It's, it's just so tragic. And just, it, uh, I think the colloquial expression is it pisses me off. Me too. When, uh, me too. When I read Putin saying, we're fighting the Nazis, you know, we're going to mm -hmm. liberate them from the Nazis. And they're acting like yeah. Nazis. It just Absolutely. I wrote that in the book, that that Z, that brushstroke Z that they have all over everything. Um, it's, it's supposed to be a symbol for the Western District. Um, it, to me, it's like a swastika when I see that ugly Z, because what it represents is just the total 
dehumanization of an entire country of people. And uh, just the, the excuse that it's all about fighting white supremacy and neo-Nazis is, is just nonsense, you know. And we, it's so obvious. Zelensky's Jewish, right? Uh, just, did you happen to see John Stewart was on Hannity? No. Which is a strange combination. Yeah. And not John Stewart. Uh, Sean Penn. Absolutely. Excuse me. Sean Penn oh, was Sean a, Penn. Oh, I, I would love to see that. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, it was just recently... Sean Penn has a humanitarian organization, and he went to the Ukraine to do a documentary uh, and interviewed uh, Zelensky and saw all what was going on. Of course, it just emotionally devastated him to see what you write about in this book. Mm. And uh, Hannity called up Sean Penn and uh, said, Hi, I'm Hannity. Would you like to come on my show? And Mm. Sean Penn said, I don't trust you. Yeah, that's obvious, right. And, uh, and so he still went on the show? He went on yeah. the show because Hannity said, what I want to talk about is what you saw and what you experienced in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so Penn went on the show, and anytime Hannity would start talking a little bit about politics, uh, Penn would say, you know, this isn't about politics, you know. Mm-hmm. This is about it, being a human being. <laughs> you know? it's about, I believe it's about good versus evil. Just just yeah. like World War II and what that represented to Americans, what was happening in Europe. I mean, this is... And, and people say, well, I thought you wrote true crime. Well, this is a true, true crime. crime. A lot of people don't realize that state crime is a classification of crime. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Class against humanity, just like in the Nuremberg trials. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah. Uh, it is definitely a fact crime issue. It is true crime because it is a crime. Instead of being, uh, you know, perpetrated by an individual against their mm-hmm. spouse or their niece or somebody, mm-hmm. it's a state-sanctioned crime. And yeah, uh, uh, you know, you know, it intrigues me, and it's true that every genocide, every mass genocide, is preceded by a very intense strategic propaganda campaign. And Putin's really a master of that, clearly. He's a master. But you know what intrigues me is the change in Zelensky's character that you can see from before the war, what he was like, and even what he looked like to today. Mm. How, how this war has changed him. I mean, you can see the stress on his face. He's aged. Um, and, and I saw one, uh, one video clip where he was looking at the mass graves in Buka and all the dead civilians in the mass grave, and the anger on his face. He was asked, are you sad or are you angry? And he said, oh, I'm not sad. I am angry. And, and you know, when, when a monster comes into your country and does that level of destruction to your people, um, how can you feel anything but anger? Yeah, you can't. There, there's nothing. This was like a... Sean Penn said, you look in this guy's eyes, and there is a sense of dedication and Mm -hmm. a depth that, you know, he was offered the chance to leave the country, you know. Yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. Which often happens. Oh, there's a war in my country. Pardon me, I'm going to Palm Springs. (laughs) (laughs) I got a dental appointment. Yeah. I got to get out of here. Yeah, there's a casino I have to visit. 
But you know what, bro? That I mean, that same um, kind of honorable nobility that we're seeing in him, you see it in all of the Ukrainians right now. That's you know, what you he said. The soldiers yeah. and the wives, the the grandparents. I mean, they are a strong and proud people. Um, when we went to pick up the young woman that wrote this book with me at the airport at JFK uh, in New York City, she um, she was the last to get off the plane and go through customs. But all of the Ukrainians coming out of customs, you could see they, they were just shell-shocked. I mean, these people have been through such a trauma, and it's, it's just day after day. And uh, you could just tell that it's a nation that's been totally traumatized, but at the same time, they're totally unified. Yes, absolutely. And speaking of, of the, the trauma, my uncle Gordon was in the troops that liberated the German concentration camps. Mm. And uh, big red one. Uh, that has to be that has to be traumatic in itself to come across mm-hmm. that to even see that. Yeah. <clears throat> A little old, yeah. you know. Have you watched Ken Burns' new documentary about uh, America during the Holocaust? I started to watch that. I haven't yeah, seen yeah. the whole thing yet. Yeah, interesting stuff. But when I see the Ukrainian soldiers, the prisoners of war that are coming back to Ukraine through prisoner of war exchanges, they, they, some of them look like those images you have of men in the concentration camps. I mean, Starved to they're, death, so, uh, they're all bones. bones. They look like skeletons, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I still have uh, I still have relatives that are alive, that survived. Wow! They were children. You, have, you, have you gotten their recordings, their recorded memories? Because once they go, uh, they're gone. I have one. Uh, mm-hmm. Just had an aunt pass away this year, uh, who lived the Anne Frank experience, literally. And mm. mm-hmm. uh, you know, being hidden in basements and attics. Uh, mm-hmm. Until they were out, until they got out of Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that was something that was uh, really interesting for me writing this book is that a lot of times these stories are written years later. I so um, the fact that I, I, it was almost in real time that I wrote this story. I mean, we started working on it in late April. It was just a few months after she was underground. You know, two months after she was underground. So all of the memories were so vivid and fresh. Yeah. And I'm sure if once she learns English and she reads it 20, 30 years from now, she'll probably say, oh, I forgot about that little thing or that yeah. little thing. Or suppress so, that because it was too traumatic. In this case, my I, aunt right. my aunt refused to discuss that time period in her life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when her cancer, uh, it was become evident that her cancer was terminal. She broke down and dictated her story to her daughter wow. and friend. And I'm hoping mm-hmm. that, well, you know, at some point that'll be written up and we'll get to follow yeah, it. Uh, I was just telling uh, our producer's uh, significant otherette, Lori Downey Jr., that my father would never talk about his childhood uh, mm-hmm. in the Ukraine. And we took him to see Fiddler on the Roof. He said, well, Dad, mm-hmm. was it like that? And the only thing he would say was, it was exactly like that, except a hell of a lot worse, and nobody was singing. Yeah, idle, idle, idle. Right. But actually, right. He, he would never, he would never talk about it. And then one day, my my father-in-law 
said, hey, Dave, you never told us what it was like being a kid growing up in uh, that little village in Russia when the Cossacks would come in and try to kill all the Jews. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we all just kind of froze because my dad would never talk about it. He just went, mm-hmm. took a big deep breath and goes, well, it was like this. And he just started telling all these stories that he'd never told us. To get out the tape recorder? <laughs> uh, actually, uh, I think I might have recorded some of it on 8mm sound film. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. it was really horrific stuff. I mean, the, the Cossacks oh. would come through town. He didn't have, a friend of the family was walking with him, holding my dad's hand, and they killed the guy while he was holding on to my dad's hand. Unbelievable. And the Cossacks, there was a swimming hole right outside the village, and the kids would have to dive down in the water because the bullets would go by them in the water because they'd shoot mm. at this for fun. Mm. And, uh, I mean, it's amazing how the brain can even process that and keep going. Like, how did your father come here and build a family and work a job? And how how do you survive that and still live a relatively normal life? I don't know. Um, you push it into the back uh, of your mm-hmm. mind, forget about it, and move right. forward. That's what my aunt right. said. It was interesting yeah. for, for our lifetime. Okay, and then we're talking 60 years. For, for our lifetime, she never had furniture in that in her, their house in Beverly Hills. There was, hmm. of course, there's a couch and a table, mm-hmm. you know, you know, a china hutch. But there wasn't a lot any furniture in this big giant house. And hmm. you know, it always you know drove us nuts. Why don't you furnish this place? Well, it turns mm-hmm. out that she was terrified of having. To lose it all when chased mm-hmm. out of the home. Yeah, well, exactly. That's that's, that's how you, it totally changes your way of thinking. That you realize the transience of life, how hmm. what's here today can be gone tomorrow, just in the blink of an eye. Because that that's uh, what I refer to in the book a lot. That Adoriana shared with me is that you know the destruction of Mariupol happened within a matter of weeks, and really from the February 24th, when the invasion began, after that, her life would never be the same again. So now it's hard for her to happily settle in any place without worrying that it's going to be destroyed. Oh, yeah. It'll always be. That could happen at any minute. Yeah, well, I can, you know, I can understand Connecticut being destroyed, but. Well, by choice. (laughs) (laughs) By vote. But I I like like the end. I like the end of the uh, of the story where where our heroine, you know, notes that my story is just one in millions and each right. one deserves to be told. Yeah. And and this uh, this is the first book I know of that deals with this subject matter. And I think there's going to be a ton of books to come, but I really that's one of the reasons why I didn't even get an agent and try to find a traditional one of the top five publishers. I went with an independent publisher, Wild Blue Press. Which is um, a great choice. Good choice. Yes, thank you. And they published my first book about the the serial killer as well, and it was always good to work with them. But what I love about Wild Blue Press and many other independent publishers is they get it right out there, right? Because when you're writing nonfiction like this, you know, it's in real time, and and people are interested in it right now. So I didn't want to waste months trying to find an agent, then trying to go through... Right, the, it could be two years before it came out otherwise. Exactly, exactly, right, right, yeah. 
Uh, what was it? Oh, there's a little side story. You see about how you don't know what what's going through people's heads, and like what he was saying about the furniture. And mm-hmm. Is my brother and sister, who were both passed away, but they were older than than I. We all happened to be home at the same time, and my sister says to me, Burl, says, did you ever notice that we have a lovely fireplace and lovely fire irons and all this stuff, and yet there's never been a fire in the fireplace? It had never occurred to me. <laughs> she says, why don't you go ask Dad why? She says, you're the youngest, you go ask. I've never had the nerve to ask him. So I went over to my father and said, hey, Dad, we have a lovely fireplace. Why have we never had a fire? Mm-hmm. And he stops, and he looks at me, and he smiles, and he says, she's like, I'm emotional at this. He says, every day I wake up, the first thing I do is I look at the fireplace. And if there hasn't been a fire in it, that's another day of victory. Mm. One more day, I didn't have to light the fire to stay alive. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of Ukrainians are going to feel that this winter. Yeah, so if you want a fire in a fireplace, go ahead, I don't care. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So we had a fire in the fireplace. He thought it was really cool. But he did. That was his mindset. I didn't have to make a fire to stay alive. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like the kid in my book, she she survived on stale waffles and chocolate that the, the men from their shelter would sneak out and try to find food for all the people in the shelter. And all they could find was the big boxes of of waffles and still chocolate. So, you know, she survived on, you know, like one waffle a day. I bet she doesn't um, eat waffles anymore. That's what she, I never want to look at another waffle for the rest of my life, yeah. My dad was the same way about peanut butter. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he, show you how things are different now than they were just even if several decades ago. My dad decided he wanted to go to the World's Fair in St. Louis or wherever it was. Yeah. Uh, and so he rode on a freight train from Walla Walla, Washington, to St. Louis, and all he had to eat was a jar of peanut butter. <laughs> so, wow. You know, he wow. wanted to go to the, so he said to his dad, I want to go. Uh, he said, okay, I can get you on a freight train. You know, they were so used to it. I mean, they went from the Ukraine, they escaped to Romania by bribing the guards at the border, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, the guards decided to, to kill them, keep the money. <laughs> Fortunately, yeah. uh, someone overheard them plotting that and ran down to the rowboats. They'd go back, go back. They're going to kill you. Took another six months to bribe off more guards, you know, in a different place to get into Romania. Mm-hmm. So they were used to doing these kind of things. So, yeah, get on yeah. a freight train and go to St. Louis. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> then come back. Yeah. You know who did a good job uh, bringing that theme up was uh, Mouse, the book, the, the graphic novelist. What's his name? Ari, what's his name? The guy that did the graphic. About the mouse. Novel. Yeah. Mouse. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and how the father, you know, is in Florida, you know, in the 70s, overreacting to everything, like at the grocery store, you know, arguing with the manager. He's always feeling like people are trying to nickel and dime him, and he's... And he's always on the defense because, you know, he was used to doing that in wartime and in the concentration camps. And now he can't get out of that mindset mm-hmm. that everybody is the enemy and everybody is dangerous and wants to take something from you. you know, once you get those synapses, you know, uh, mm-hmm. practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. And mm-hmm. the more synapses you have for a situation, mm-hmm. 
the more reactions you're going to have. That's why you have to stop, reflect. I always try to teach people, I used to do seminars on this, that if you have your standard reactions instead of responses to situations mm-hmm. such as that, it's an excellent example. Pretend mm-hmm. you have a remote control. You can hit pause, reflect, and then choose what channel you want to be on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. have to pause and reflect on it first. This is the same thing that Bradshaw teaches with his Coming Home series. Mm-hmm. That uh, the mind it, the mind builds automated scripts yeah. of reactions. Mm-hmm. And we're not mm-hmm. in control when the script runs. Yeah. Right. So he tries yeah. to, he, he teaches you how to recognize the scripts, how to edit them. Yeah. Same concept. Is that John, John Bradshaw who wrote the inner child stuff? Is that who you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, the, the psychologist, yeah. Yeah, I remember reading that. And, you know, the flip side of his, his what he talks about, because a lot of it, like you said, is, is very true and, and enlightening, but he said in, in reflection he felt like his inner child stuff, the way he parented his kids, was too soft. And he started thinking that maybe a little bit of toxic shame, that was his <laughs> word. Remember, parents instill toxic shame in you. He's like, Maybe a little bit of toxic shame isn't a bad thing. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's the it's the difference between um, uh, liberal parenting and mm-hmm. uh, and tough love. There's a happy medium. Yeah, tough right. love is merely a fancy word for abuse. No, <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> it depends on the situation. It depends on the situation. I was an enabler. My girlfriend is dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I helped because I helped her acquire the drugs that killed her, mm. and her brother, mm. you know, basically walked away from her and said, "I'm mm. sorry, I love you, but until you get yourself clean, you know, we're we're done." Right. And if I had had the courage, you know, to help her get clean, she'd still be alive. Uh, you're putting too much on your shoulders there. Um, there were, uh, there were a lot of others, enablers, her mother, yeah. uh, you know, others in her life, but I was the one driving her to San Diego yeah. to go to the yeah. pharmacies and fill the fraudulent, uh, prescriptions mm-hmm. to get the drugs mm-hmm. from her. Well, someone else would yeah. have driven her if you hadn't. I don't know. Um, would you run a mission to get it and we'll get them? Uh, I came, we came very yeah. close to... Oh, I, I came very close to dead uh, there, the last trip we made. There was mm. the, you know, um, if you know Tijuana, you don't go to the mm. tourist section. You go just past it. And then there, then there are legitimate pharmacies that have the real drugs. and You don't ah. have the tourist stuff going on. And we had yeah. a uh, cab driver. And then we would mm-hmm. contact him whenever we were coming up so he would drive us around. And he knew mm-hmm. that I would tip well. You were a nitwit? Tip well. Oh, <laughs> same difference. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, just on the outskirts there, as you head further into Mexico, um, mm-hmm. there uh, were, you know, shops. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily tourists and not necessarily indigenous, but they were kind of a hybrid. And there were a mm-hmm. lot of shops. And essentially, they were just, you know, alleyways. And then the hmm. storefronts on each side, and then they had the metal gates that would come down when they either siesta or close. Mm-hmm. And there's one place that she loved to go because she liked to bake and get vanilla. And if you go here to get vanilla, you get a little bottle that costs you $80 million. 
but you can get a, a quart of pure vanilla for four for four or five bucks. Big bottle. Hmm. And we would go there to get it. And it turns out that the bad guys were coming through the alley collecting. And the proprietor who knew us hit us in a little a little safe storage space underneath one of the display counters. Huh. So you hid underneath it, and then the then the the bottom of it would come on top of you, and the stuff would be there. And wow. once once they were finished and had left, he made sure it was clear. Got a hold of our. Uh, our taxi driver, and he sneaked in and snuck us back out. Huh. That was the last oh, time. You're really lucky to be alive. You're right about that. Well, I would be wow. dead, and she would be kidnapped. So if she bought drugs down there, then would you drive back to California with the drugs in your car? Would you, were you anxious about uh, Well, again, again, that? they were prescription. Ah, so she hmm. she stole a pad of prescription, a prescription pad from her psych, her psych, um, her psych, uh, not a psychologist, psychiatrist, yeah, yeah. who can prescribe, mm -hmm. and she she stole that pad and then she forged this prescriptions on them, take them to Mexico, uh -huh. get them filled. Wow, and she, you know, she was determined to get her drugs no matter what. I mean, I really think you were. Yeah. A, a vehicle for that, obviously, but she, like Burl said, she would have found some other way. She was on a mission. Uh, yeah, the she, you know there there was also other sides to that. I mean, her mother was going through colon cancer, mm. and her drugs mm -hmm. were like six hundred dollars a month. At mm -hmm. that, you know, we're talking thirty, you know, thirty-five years. I always ago. wonder about that. I remember when, uh, our friend Susan Murphy Milano, who was didn't get diagnosed with cancer until she was stage four. And the medication she had to take was what twenty five thousand dollars. Mm. Come on, I mean, who's got twenty five grand once a month yeah. for your medication? Yeah, so you, you know. take that and go down to Mexico and you get it for thirty five bucks. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know what? And my husband has no. my husband had stage four cancer about oh. six years ago. Wow! And he was literally given a forty percent chance of survival, and he. He did it. He survived. The chemotherapy worked wonders. Uh, it was very aggressive, R-CHOP chemotherapy. But, um, so he's been clean of cancer for over five years now. And uh, the one good thing that came from that experience, other than the fact that he survived, was that uh, we got medical marijuana. And, <laughs> and you go sit around listening life. to Moby Grape. Yeah, absolutely. When I get off the phone here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to partake a little. Oh, there you but go. <laughs> to I recover from this experience. I have, yeah. a, I have a fabulous medical story, maybe later. Maybe later. Put it on that show. Okay. It's great for chronic pain and for sleep, yeah. you know? So I was wondering why she had to travel so far. I mean, well, here, I'm looking at the map. And she went from one coast over to Poland. It's almost, uh, what, 700 miles? Yeah, well, she could have gone and settled in central Ukraine, right? Yeah. But uh, it's, as you know, it's just as dangerous there right now. Um, no, no place in Ukraine is safe right now. So she, she had to travel through the... When her early weeks of travel was under Russian 
supervision. I mean, she was on the bus with Russian soldiers carrying their machine guns, telling everybody, you know, if I see a phone, I'm going to shoot you kind of thing. So it was highly stressful, and they're traveling over these fields in these rickety buses over, you know, trying to avoid landmines and whatnot. So when she got out of Mariupol, the Russians took them to the Donbass region um, and only gave them one, two, two options. You can stay in the eastern occupied region of Ukraine uh, that's, that's Russian, or you can go to Russia. But they did not give her the option to leave Russian-occupied territory, so she had to take she had to take the chance of being human trafficked, and because there's some of that going on there right now too, with uh, women and children being so vulnerable. But she had to find a guy in the middle at dawn one day in the marketplace and pay him to you know do what what they weren't allowed to do, which was drive towards central Ukraine. So uh, she took a stop in Benicia because her soldier friends were there. And something else I like about this book is that she knows a lot of Ukrainian soldiers. And it was through them texting her uh, that it helped her to survive. They'd say, like, delete everything on your phone that has to do with Mariupol. No pictures of houses. They can say, well, you're trying to show enemy locations. Uh, no pictures of you know, any Russian, uh, Ukrainian insignia, no headscarves, no bandora, you know, banjo, nothing Ukrainian. Um, so, so she took their advice and, and deleted everything on her phone um, in order to pass through those filtration checkpoints. But when she was in the eastern Donbass region, after she left Mariupol, she didn't have a choice but to either stay there or go to Russia. So then when she escaped, yeah, Ukraine's a huge big country. She had to go all the way across Ukraine to Poland, and from there she went to the Czech Republic. So why didn't, why wasn't Poland a stop point? Why couldn't she just stay there? Um, well, Poland right now is really exhausted for its resources. You know, Poland, I think, is, I, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's the country that has, you know, had the largest influx of Ukrainian immigrants. So their social infrastructure is really on life support now in terms of trying to provide for all of these people, you know, because they, they get there, they don't speak the language, so they have to go on state benefits and food stamps or whatever they call it over there. Uh, it's very difficult to find housing. Uh, I understand ho uh, housing in Poland is extremely expensive right now. So most Ukrainian refugees live with uh, Polish people in their houses. So the Czech Republic in April, when she arrived at the Czech Republic in April, it had more resources to offer. They, they took her on a bus to a, a ski resort, you know, and it was starting to be off-season in early April. So the ski resort was transformed into a refugee hostel. So actually it was pretty good what she had there compared to probably what she would get in Poland. Um, she had also considered going to, like, the Netherlands, going to a refugee hostel there. Um, but the problem is she had a dog with her, you know? And a lot, of the, a lot of the hostels didn't allow dogs. And just getting her to the United States with this dog was in itself so much work. You know, trying to get the CDC approval for this dog because the dog is considered a high-risk dog because Ukraine is a country that doesn't require rabies vaccinations. 
So we had to get the dog all vaccinated and, uh, you know, submit all sorts of medical documents to get her to come to the United States with her owner. So I, I think that's why she didn't settle in Poland is that they just didn't have the opportunities that the Czech Republic was giving refugees at that time. Oh, very nice. Oh. Well, she could come to America with the situations about the same. Uh, <laughs> I know. It's just, you know, it, whoever said there was a safety t- net hasn't tried to live it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, um, I've got to tell you, you know, I had this fairy tale mentality that, you know, first off, no, nobody from outside America is allowed to talk bad about Americans. But I can talk bad about America because I am an American. But whenever people, Canada, or my husband's Canadian, for example, whenever other people of other countries talk bad about America, I get very defensive. I get very, you know, like, hey, hey, this is a good country. So when she came here, she just found a lot of things to complain about. Oh, yeah. She she, she really was nostalgic, and she was homesick. She was missing Ukraine. So it's like everything I thought I'd show her that would impress her and make her happy— it just made her miss Ukraine even more. Um, for example, one thing she just has real trouble accepting here is that everybody drives. And that, you know, eventually we had to get her car. Our Ukrainian-American neighbor gave her his used car. And uh, she, we have to teach her to drive now. But, you know, she's used to, a lot of Ukrainians are used to living in the city and having public transportation for everything. And life over there was much more modest than it is in America. I mean, people didn't have the big houses and the big subdivisions and the big SUVs, but she prefers that. She, she prefers that city life and the simplicity of just taking the bus or the train places. Then in America, to her, it just seems like everything's so far away from each other. Yeah. But what I, what I found fascinating is, well, now I didn't find it fascinating. I found it upsetting. Is uh, just prior to Thanksgiving, when the food stamps, the uh, they call it something like the federal emergency money food stamps, mm-hmm. uh, was supposed to come through, and my daughter is on the SNAP program, mm-hmm. and she was supposed to get two hundred and thirty dollars for the month for food. Right. Got mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. Really? Except a note that said. You're supposed to get your federal emergency food money on the 18th. If you don't get it, you'll get it next month. So she got absolutely no food money for the month of November. Oh, wow. And so that December comes and she didn't get anything either. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did she go to the food pantry? uh, Yeah, so food pantry, yeah. She's got enough canned cream of chicken soup. But she probably never wants to see a creamy chicken again the rest of her life. <laughs> Kidney beans and turtle peas and all that stuff people have in the back of their cupboards collecting dust that's yes. about to expire. Yes. Yeah. Macaroni and cheese from 40 years ago. Right. 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 Actually, uh, uh, Doriana went to the food pantry this week and, and she came. She's doing house cleaning. My house cleaner comes and picks her up and helps her do some jobs. So she's getting extra money that way in addition to government benefits, but which she's allowed to do. She's not going over the limit or anything, but uh, she went to the food pantry with my house cleaner, and she came home with this enormous turkey and all sorts of food. I said, we can't eat food from the food pantry. Like, like it really was hard for me to, like, I don't want to take this from 
people who need it. We don't need this, but it was important for her to give us a turkey, I guess. But she was amazed at how much the food pantry actually had. Because nowadays, a lot of them get a lot of fresh produce and meat and, you know, good, good products, at least in Connecticut. Yeah, well, that's because you're in Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> Gasoline is probably $2 a gallon. Did Adriana yeah. uh, hook up with her sister? Well, her sister lives in Florida. Right. So they have not seen each other yet. No. And uh, her parents and her brother are still in Russian-occupied territory. So oh that's one of the reasons I changed all the names in the book. Um, but, you know, she hasn't heard from her parents since August. And the last time she heard from them, it was when she was in the Czech Republic. Her brother had a smartphone, and he just wrote, we are alive. And that was it, which in itself is kind of chilling, you know? Yeah. And after that, they have not, they, 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 well, I can't say any more about their location. But, you know, we're really worried about them. The parents are, they had her late in life. So they're, they're getting up there in age, and they have a lot of health problems. And it's like, what do people like that do in a time of war? You know, they'll, when you lose everything, we suspect our house has been taken over by Russian soldiers. Like So, so many of these soldiers, um, they just take over the civilians' homes and live there and sleep there and eat their food. And um, so we, we have no idea where they are right now. And that's something for her, especially now in the Christmas season. We went out for Thanksgiving to a buffet. And, you know, she was just crying at the end of the meal because she's looking around, seeing all these happy American families. And, and she's wondering, where are my parents? And now we're in the Christmas season. So every day, it, it's like a big, heavy cloud over her every day. We have no idea. Uh, and I'm especially concerned about the brother because um, Russia is not kind to young men, I tell you. They, to young Ukrainian men, I mean, it's scary what's happening over there. Well, it's not exactly a cheerful topic whatsoever, but the book is, is fantastic. And, Thank uh, you. Thank I hope you. everyone who's listening, and the people who listen to this program, buy books. Great. <laughs> from... Maripol. Yeah, Escape from Maripol. Escape from Maripol. Yeah, Maripol. I, I never was sure how to pronounce it, like, because different broadcasters were saying it different, differently. So I went with Lester, Lester Holt, Maripol. Is that how you pronounce it? Maripol. That's what it looks like to me. My daughter, who okay. speaks Russian, amazingly enough, oh. Oh. she pronounces it like the Russians would. <laughs> my daughter actually spent... Even though my, my father escaped from there, <laughs> from the Ukraine, uh, uh, back when it was still, of course, run by Russia. She spent six mm -hmm. months uh, uh, in Chelyabinsk at the foot of the Ural Mountains where they had a nuclear accident that wasn't publicized many years ago. So everyone is deformed. Free <laughs> mm. uh, eyes. Uh, she was there for six months. Fortunately, she mm -hmm. happened to stay with the family that owned the internet franchise so she had free internet use so she could talk to us all the time but, right. uh, yeah that's another that's another thing you think now in this information war the russian people like they are so isolated they don't even in the book you know she could call russia she could call parts of eastern ukraine that were occupied by russia but she had absolutely no mo mobile access to any 
any free country, any all oh, the rest of Ukraine. So the people of Russia now are like in this bubble, yeah. you know, where they they're getting no other news. Um, they're not they're not hearing the truth. Well, oh, I think uh, that I think it's filtering out from the soldiers that are returning. Yeah, that's that is one yeah. source. But if we had more time, we could talk about that, but we're out of time. Yeah. So I say buy the book immediately, order it uh, directly from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookseller, or order it direct from Wild Blue Press, uh, The Escape from Mary Pole by Ann K. Howard. Thanks for coming. And come back again with your next book, okay? Absolutely. Maybe I'll see you at Bouchercon in San Diego. <laughs> All right. I'd love that. Okay.